Hey nerdlings, this is Sarah Ashley. If I may interrupt your podcast listening for just a minute, I would really like to talk to you guys about Nerdonomy.com. That's our website. If you guys haven't been to it already, you should really go check it out. We have a page where you can just meet the nerds. We have a blog where we have all of our original content that we write when we're not recording. And we also have listener feedback. So if you guys really want to go ahead and talk to us, see what we have to offer, or even maybe make a nice healthy donation at our merch station, then you can please do so at Nerdonomy.com. All right, and now enjoy your podcast. You're listening to Nerds on Film with Brian Moriarty, David McGuire, and Sarah Ashley. What do you think is, or who do you think is the best Disney villain? The best Disney villain. That's a tough one. Well, let's let's start just listing them out. Shall we go through the rogues gallery, maybe? The what? The rogues gallery. Okay, so this shows my comic book nerd side, because when you look at the collection of villains related to one character, they call them the rogues gallery. Oh. Uh, it was coined by The Flash in the oh. 1950s or 60s. Disney, even though there's not one hero, mm-hmm. definitely has a rogues gallery of villains, I think. Sure. So let's, let's look at who we've got. Um, we've got Ursula. From Little Mermaid. Ursula, of course. The sea Witch. Um, going forward, then there would, there would be Jafar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, Gaston. Gaston, yes. From Scar. Beauty and the Beast. Scar from The Lion King. And those are, like, the greatest of the more recent Disney films. Hades. Hades from Hercules, yes. Whoever the voodoo guy was from uh, Princess and the Frog. Oh, the witch doctor. I just don't know his name. Yeah, neither do I. Yeah. Um, the mom entangled. I mean, the witch, yeah. Well, yeah, okay, the adopted mother. Going backwards, uh, okay. there's, I mean, there's tons. Tons, tons. Cruella de Vil, we didn't talk about her at all yet mm-hmm. um, when we were prepping for the episode. We also have... The Evil Queen from Snow White. The Evil Queen from Snow White. We've got Captain Hook from Peter Pan. We've also got... The stepmom from Cinderella, which I know she has a name, I just can't think of it off the top of my head right now. Right, right. Speaking of animal adaptations, of course, Robin Hood... Right, we have oh, to talk yeah. about John. Mm-hmm. Oh, probably the, I think he's the funniest villain because he had the laugh. Aha, aha. Yeah. Oh, and the snake. Mummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got to do the thumb. That was a whole. That was a good scene, actually. That <laughs> it was, it was, was great. really good. Um, let's see here. Oh, actually, this was the interesting one. So, Alice in Wonderland. I said the Red Queen, but your argument is nay, nay. The Cheshire Cat is, in yes. fact, the so, villain in that movie. I mean, the Red Queen is clearly crazy, trying to cut people's heads off. And she's definitely an opposing force. Yes. But I think the actual antagonist who's working against Alice mm-hmm. is the Cheshire Cat. Yes. Or, arguably, the drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or even, hey, the White Rabbit is the one, the catalyst for all that action to happen. So could that one not necessarily be an intentional antagonist? I don't think, I think he would definitely be an opponent, but I don't think he's the main opponent. I think he is intrusion to, to stasis. Yes. Intrusion to stasis. I like that. That works. Yeah. But I do think, I mean, the evil queen from Snow White is definitely evil. She, but she has very clear motivations, right? Um, she wants to be the fairest of them all. And she's to, just a girl trying to look good. Yes, but that's what Botox is for, honey. <laughs> Which, uh, by the way, is one of the stupidest ideas, I think. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I hate. Because let's let's inject the toxin that in the wrong dosage will slowly and painfully kill you 
But you'll die looking good. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense to me. Can't smile right anymore or even look at Joan Rivers. She's in her eighties. Yep. She looks in her thirties. There is something dreadfully wrong with that. Yeah, and she looks the same age as her daughter. She looks younger than her daughter, (laughs) which is awful. And, I mean, to top that off, like, when she talks now, literally, her eyebrows are now constantly up, so that all she has to do is upward inflect to show surprise, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's it's sad. She has no facial expression anymore. Nerds on elective surgery. Yeah. (laughs) Nerds on celebrities, yeah. yeah. But you know what? Ms. Rivers can take a joke. Yeah, so. So, yeah, she sure she can. She'll be fine. Yeah. Um, Cruella DeVille, I think, is also a really good villain. Um, and the only villain I know who has a song dedicated to her. This is true. Cruella DeVille. Cruella DeVille. Yeah. Um, and plus, I mean, hey, she wants to kill puppies. How horrible is that? To make a coat out of it, that too. That makes her a really awful human being, in my opinion. So Arguably um, a sociopath. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm definitely not a fan of hers. I do think Scar has a pretty good minion even though they turn on him. But uh, having a whole horde of uh, of hyenas, that's pretty rocking. Yeah. The sea witch, clearly powerful. Ursula, for sure. Very much hell-bent on vengeance. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, Gaston is interesting to me because he starts off being this overbearing gentleman. Not even a gentleman. He's just this no, over... he's a pig. Yeah. But the moment you start to see him connive and really like go to extreme lengths to get mm-hmm. what he wants that song about, oh no i'm sorry he there's the song about gaston too so yes. there's two villains who have songs about them well which the gaston song is fantastic right. and so brilliantly written too because that's the point where you realize this fucker's insane yeah yeah and we're, they're, they're devoting a whole song to him and everyone's like oh he's the greatest guy ever he's no fantastic. you are a monster well and that's the juxtaposition right, right. Between, he's the real monster between well, the, the real monster, but also if you just look at um, the opinions of the townspeople, what do they value? Clearly, they value yeah. brawn over brains, because if you look at Belle being an outcast, but him being yeah. Mr. Popular. Have you seen La Belle La Bête, which is the 1950s French version of the Beauty and the Beast? I have not. So it's the first time I've ever heard of beauty called Belle. Of course, that makes sense, because Belle is just French for beauty. Yep. But I love... That what they did in that movie because there is a Gaston character. Mm-hmm. He's not called Gaston, but there's a Gaston character who goes into the castle, mm-hmm. and the castle's mystical defenses protect the beast. So there's a statue that's of, of a cherub holding a, a bow and arrow, and the statue comes alive, sees this guy, and shoots him with the arrow. And when he, he gets, gets struck with the arrow, he turns into the beast. Oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. It's like oh. Very good use of vision visuals there. That's really cool. And then, of course, there was the TV version of Beauty and the Beast. Right, with Ron Perlman yep. and Linda <laughs> Hamilton. And I'm sure Sean would love for me to mention the fact that I used to be terrified of the Ron Perlman Beast <laughs> as a kid. Aww. Because the makeup was so good. Sure, sure. But, I mean, he looks like a lion. But the Beast isn't scary. No, he isn't. And he's definitely not a villain. And I will be honest, if, if I'm caught off guard, if I take one look, I will like jump for a second. But then I realize, okay, I'm over this. I'm yeah. over this. Because I did watch one episode. Mm-hmm. And Ron Perlman played Vincent so warmly and so intelligently that you're immediately not scared of him mm-hmm. at all until he's pissed off. And then he, because then they do the whole roar. And I think they, they say, cut, can we get the hairstylist in here? Let's like, they take a hairdryer and they make us there look extra like poopy. Freight, yeah, like a lion about to attack. Mm-hmm. And then they say, okay, go. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know? So let me start with this. Who is your favorite Disney villain? Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. Maleficent. Hands down. Okay. For sure. Definitely. There's some major flaws with her. Okay. This is why I think that she is the best villain. She's arguably one of the most powerful villains. 
she can turn into a goddamn dragon for God's sakes, and she can like you know enchant a spinning needle, and she can make a huge briar patch grow, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the her motivation is that her pride was damaged. She didn't get invited to a party, so she decides, I'm going to kill a baby. That's horrible. The baby who was being christened. Yes. Whose party she was not invited to. Yes. Gee, I wonder why nobody invited her. But that's the thing, though. She's She, like, seriously has, like... Can you imagine that in the modern world? Why didn't you invite me? Oh, because you're a psycho bitch. Yeah. <laughs> because, girl, you're cray-cray. Okay? That's why. <laughs> and then, you know, she's got a horde of goblins. Again, really cool minions. And then she's got her, her little raven sidekick. She definitely is my favorite villain. She's your favorite, huh? Mm-hmm. Who's your favorite? Who do you think my favorite is? I'm thinking it's the one you played in a play. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, you are right. My favorite is Captain Hook. There we go. From Peter Pan. By the way, with that, folks, welcome to Nerds on Film. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Sarah Ashley. David McGuire could not be with us tonight. Um, Last minute cancellation due to some personal personal conflicts. Personal conflicts. He will be back next week. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Captain Hook, I think, is the best because every male villain who I think is being played in the modern age in Disney... Mm -hmm is playing off of Captain Hook oh. in some way or another. Okay. Yeah. Minus the, the comic relief part, because Scar was I comical. Wouldn't say, but... I wouldn't say he was a comic relief character. I would say Sid in Toy Story, that's more of a comic relief style right. one. What I mean is that there was moments where the villain would be funny. Mm-hmm. Scar wouldn't be funny. He would be deprecating at times. Yes. But he would not be funny and of his own because of his own character flaws right he does have that song when he does be prepared the the line it's clear from your vacant expression mm-hmm. the lights are not all on all on up there which is hilarious <laughs> but it's not because of him right i think it's because he's making fun of them right captain nook is funny because he is this mean old pirate and yet he has this crippling fear of crocodiles yes which is very metaphorical for death right because the clock's mm-hmm. running out mm-hmm it just plays so beautifully into the theme of the story. Yes. And I think that's why Peter Pan is one of my favorite childhood stories. Mine too. Yeah. Definitely mine too. And what a story to talk about. Yes. Because, I mean, we've talked about this before, that nothing's original. But mm-hmm. it gets damn close it's, to being original. And it's important. I feel like it's really important and very influential on future stories too. Plus, it's the closest story to a fairy tale that we know of that was actually written in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think both that and The Wizard of Oz, both, they both came out around the same year, 1905, I believe, is when they were... When did Alice in Wonderland come out? Well, Alice in Wonderland, the Lewis Carroll novel, was done in the late 1800s. Yeah. So yeah. I'm talking about the original works before okay. Disney adapted yeah, no, them. Yeah, I was talking about the same thing as well. Okay, cool. So yeah. I was just having to have that in my head, I guess. Oh, okay, just as a reference point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it is more of a folktale-style fantasy. I guess if we want to talk a little bit about the background of it, it started off originally as a play written by J.M. Barry. Yes. Um, highly influenced. If you guys ever saw the movie Finding Neverland, granted it was a little looser, but it was um, roughly based on his time spent with the Llewellyn Davies family. Yes. And the and their, their kids. And it's arguable that the youngest child was, in fact, the inspiration for Peter Pan. I believe the youngest Llewellyn Davies child actually wrote a uh, memoir mm-hmm. about his interactions with... Yeah, I believe Mr. so. Mr. Barry. And there was some controversy about his intentions in hanging out with the family. You know, was he trying to have an inappropriate affair with the mother? Or, you know, was he having an inappropriate affair with the kids? 
None of that has been proven. All of that has been a lot of just talk. Talk. To set the backdrop, though, this is early 20th century British upper class society we're talking about. Not the peerage, but just upper class commoner society where everything was about appearances. And to be seen, a married man, to be seen with a widowed woman and her children, it immediately causes rumors to start going about. And the fact that he was so playful with them. um, Right. Actually, it's really interesting. I've actually been to Kensington Park, which is where they spent a lot of time, where a good chunk of Finding Neverland was actually filmed, and I've seen the Peter Pan statue out there. Mm-hmm. I love it. I actually um, made a mission to go find it. And Kensington Gardens was actually very influential to him because Peter Pan's first story, quote-unquote, in the chronology of Peter Pan, mm-hmm. was Peter Pan at Kensington Gardens. Yes, it was. Not Peter Pan or Peter and Wendy, as the novel goes. But again, all the novels are based off of the, the play. play. The, the play was the original. Right. And right. so let's kind of talk about the play, actually, um, and sort of, I guess, the differences based on the interpretations that we've seen it now. So um, if I look at my history, at least mm-hmm. with Peter Pan, the first, my first introduction to it was with the Disney movie, which came out in 1953 right um, clearly i was not born in 1953 but what <laughs> what we have a tardis folks <laughs> we have a tardis so i grew up with the 1953 version um peter pan that was actually one of my favorite disney movies growing up was the right. disney peter pan version and then there was another version that came out in 2003 um which was wildly popular and very good and a little bit more true to the to the original play very much so true to the original play. Disney, of course, took some liberties, which it does. You know. Disney's always known, but known to take liberties with mm-hmm. the story because they want to do their own spin on it. Yeah. And I respect that. Some people hate that. They think they're trashing the original material. You know, every storyteller, if they're good at what they do, they strive to make the story their own. So you, you twist little things here and there. Mm-hmm. I don't think Disney has ever changed a story so wildly, with the exception of Pocahontas, where... Uh, because that one was based on historical was, fact. Okay. Actually, that one wasn't really based on historical fact. I will argue that that one was based on the folklore of Pocahontas, which existed. What I mean is that it strayed so far from historical fact that it... Yeah, anyway. Right. Yes, that's what I'm trying I, to say. I get, I get the argument, but yeah. I also get the argument the other way, too. Yeah. And also this, the myth of Hercules, they went really, really far off. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But again, their own take. Mm-hmm. On it, there have been plenty of novels that have done a complete reimagining of other classic characters, and we can't fault them for that either. They're just being creative. With we're looking at you, wicked. Exactly right. So, um, you you can't fault an author for trying to do something new with mm-hmm. the characters and still capture the essence of the original. We're looking at you, fan fiction on the internet. Yeah, all of you, <laughs> especially the dirty ones. <laughs> we don't care about Harry Potter after year seven. Give it up. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> We don't care about your many affairs with the doctor and all of his <laughs> different forms. <laughs> well done. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Would you like to see my childess? <laughs> wow, um, well, that's I, awkward. <laughs> Back to Peter Pan. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a uh, situation where you say it's bigger on the inside is... That's just weird. Yeah. That's totally. just creepy. <laughs> it's really, really creepy. <clears throat> Anyway. (laughs) But so if we do look back at the um, original production, there's a few things of interesting note. Tinkerbell, as we know her based on the the Disney version and subsequent versions is, um, you know, also Hook. If we Mm -hmm. look at Hook, played by Julia Roberts. Um, But she wasn't 
a person with wings flying through the air. It was actually just a light. It was right. a light on a wire that they followed around the stage. Correct. And, that, and yeah. in fact, in the stage direction, whether that was scribbled down from the first production or were J.M. Barry's original stage directions, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But it does say that. She is described as a lantern, basically. Yes. What looks like a lantern. But we know she's a person because she has one line, and she says it multiple times, where she calls Peter Pan silly ass. Yep. Yes. <laughs> uh, in multiple and different variations and inflections, of course. Mm-hmm. The other thing that set the tradition in place was that Peter Pan was played by a woman. Yes. Played Peter. by a young woman. Because... Yes. Who else could do the flying effects? And there were flying effects in the original original production, not extensively, but there were enough done that uh, they needed somebody who was the right weight well, and it was, to fly. And that was the really early forms of using a stage effect of flying. Mm-hmm. It hadn't been done too many times beforehand, so it was very dangerous at the time. Right, right. Um, and this is also a point in time, too, where... Th- Theater was very much about realism, mm-hmm. right? And trying to make it appear like it's actually happening with as best they could. To a certain extent. Right. Um, and I think that's actually where they were playing on it, too. Uh, in the stage production of Peter Pan, originally, Nana was played by a guy in a dog suit. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, that was not necessarily... They couldn't train a dog necessarily to go on stage like that. But, right. Um, another, but another reason for the choice of having a young Peter Pan or having a young woman play Peter Pan was that also is just having that youthful charm. Right. Um, you can't necessarily have a, you know, 13 year old boy actually do it and expect a 13 year old boy to really maybe have the power or maybe the chops to pull it off. Right. Because Peter Pan's a very conflicted character mm-hmm. and you need someone with enough maturity to be able to understand those thoughts and play them adequately. Yes. Yeah. And that's another reason why they mm-hmm. did it. And it was a tradition that was carried all the way up through, pretty much every stage production up until I think the 360s version that they did. Mm-hmm. And I'm not counting smaller non-professional productions. Of course, everyone, I'm sure the first male Peter Pan was, you know, in like Homeboken, New Jersey in like the 1940s or something. <laughs> you know, there's probably someone out there who was the first. But professionally, we don't see male Peter Pans, I don't think until the 360 version on stage. On stage, yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, the 2003 version had a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, the voice actor for the 1953 Peter Pan was... Male. Male. Mm-hmm. But then there was also Mary Martin. Right. Who played Peter Pan for a very long time. <laughs> she did, And her production is still touring now. Uh, mm-hmm. It's with Kathy Rigby instead as Peter Pan. Yeah. Um, and she plays the part brilliantly, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, having seen her version and the Mary Martin version of it is great. Well, one thing they also did that has stuck in pretty much every version is that Mr. Darling is the same actor who plays Captain Hook when they're in Neverland. Very, very true. Yeah, it's that juxtaposition of taking characters from the real world Into to the what, world. what is... And it's, of course, the symbolism of what is in, what force is antagonizing you in the real world. It's also mimicking the force that's antagonizing you in your fantasy world. Mm-hmm. And it's been done in countless other movies. We're looking at you, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Um, our Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Oh, really? Also used that principle, too. In some adaptations, they did. Interesting. For sure. I don't know if they did it in the Ben Crosby version. It's a device that's used very, very effectively, and this was one of the first plays that we know of in recent memory to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the setting, then. Yeah. Let's talk about the setting of Peter Pan. So here we have turn-of-the-century London, mm-hmm. a time that is uptight, 
kids are kind of coming out of a certain element where, you know, historically children were really treated like little adults. They were expected to behave. They were expected to be a little bit more proper by a certain age and plans were laid out for them, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we're slowly inching out of that era, but not really quite. So um, I think definitely playing on that appeal to youth and needing youth, I Mm -hmm. think was um, really important there. And then you compare that to Neverland, where you're allowed to be a kid and you're expected to be a kid. Sure. And there's also all sorts of awesome stuff there. There's freaking, I'm going to say Native Americans, even though they're very clearly called Indians in the story. Um, they're actually called Redskins, Redskins in yeah. Jam Barry's original version. Oh, Yeah. And then in the Disney version, there is the, the song, Why is the Redskin? Red, Red. yeah. It's awful. Political incorrectness. Yeah, well, speaking of other <laughs> political incorrectness, uh, the tribe in the Barry version is called the Piccaninny tribe, which is a slur, uh, which is actually an African-American slur in American yes, culture. I think it takes true. on a different connotation in British culture. One of our UAK listeners, please correct us on that if we're wrong. Um, but yeah, probably savage would be mm-hmm. another term used, like you said. And um, There's mermaids. There's mermaids. But the mermaids in the Disney version are much more benign Mm-hmm. As they are in Hook as well. Yes. They're very benign. Whereas in the original Jam Berry play, they are sirens. They're very much intended to be what mermaids really are Spiteful. in sea lore. Yeah. <laughs> Spiteful and Spiteful. kind of uh kind of evil. Or not necessarily evil, but kind of just looking to dick with people, I think. Yeah, exactly. And say, they hey. were definitely not fans of Wendy, that's for damn sure. Right. Which they did carry over into the Disney tradition. That's true. So mm-hmm. they were they were not fans of hers. Right. And, I mean, if you haven't read or seen any version of Peter Pan... Oh, Jesus. <laughs> first of all, I feel so sorry for you. Yes. You've had a depraved... No, not depraved. You've had a deprived childhood. <laughs> Depra- it may have been depraved, too. We're not sure. <laughs> you've been deprived, and it's led to your, your depravity. So let's say that. Okay. <laughs> I'm depraved on the account of I'm deprived. <laughs> West Side Story. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Well done, indeed. If you haven't listened to that story or read that story, or seen that story in any way, stop listening right now. Watch it. Well, wait. Welcome Welcome back. back. Now that you've read, slash seen, slash listened to some version of Peter Pan, now we can talk about it in more detail. Yes. Uh, And we don't need to go over the plot with you, because I think everybody else out there understands the basic plot line of Peter Pan. Yeah. What happens. It's the boy who never grew up. Right. That's the biggest theme, obviously, is, is growing up and, and challenging adulthood. Right. So shall we go through our favorite film adaptations? Sure. Cool. So let's start with Peter Pan with the, the 1953 okay. version. My exposure to it was when it was re-released in theaters in the late 80s. So I got to see it in theaters for the first time as a little kid, which mm-hmm. was awesome. What a way to get enveloped in that world. And I used to love the Peter Pan's flight ride at Disneyland. Oh, because that ride is the best. Yeah, it's the best when you're five. Yes. It's not the best when you're 23 and no, you're on that ride. No, it's still the best. It's still, still think awesome. So? I love it. I went on that ride recently and I was afraid I was going to break something. Oh, well, there is that. Yeah, because it looks like you're going into a storybook. It, like, it kind of looks like you're going into a cardboard ride and I don't want well, they, to break it, anything. A lot of the fantasy rides look like that, so the Fantasyland rides. I know. But I love flying over the miniature Neverland that's yeah. amazing. It still feels a little magical to me, or at least flying into a room with a bunch of twinkle lights. That is also my favorite part of the E.T. ride. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At Universal Studios. Oh, which, by the way, I never told you. I got, got to test run that ride because it wasn't open yet when I was there. So like, nice. we got pulled aside to test the ride. It was Lucky amazing. You. Oh, it was great. Nothing, nothing's wrong with this ride. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really, really cool. Anyway, so that movie is fairly loyal to J.M. Barry's original sure. intentions. Um, of course, there's musical numbers put into it. Following the leader. Follow the leader, right? You can fly, you can fly, you can fly. Yes. Um, I will say, though, second star to the right, that whole scene when they're, you know, actually flying to Neverland. Mm-hmm. And that whole that whole song, actually, I really love that song. Yeah. That's one of those ones that just, I don't know, it makes you really feel like, oh, my God, I'm flying off to Neverland. Right. And interesting to note that, in fact, the Mary Martin and Cyril Richard original production was only released a year later. So, oh, 1954? 1954, yeah. That's crazy. I so, didn't realize that. I didn't realize how close they were together. Yeah, it's it's they're very close. And there's so many influences that cross. Like, if you notice that ever since the Disney version, what color is Captain Hook been usually wearing? Red. Red, right? Mm-hmm. Never mind that at this time, red would have also been indicative of being a British soldier. So it's just, it's this color that you got associated with the character. Though yeah. not every version of Hook has stuck to that. Um, Jason Isaacs, Captain Hook, did not wear red, at least not in every scene. The Peter Pan and the Pirates cartoon from the early 1990s, the one where Tim Curry was the voice of Captain Hook. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, Captain Hook didn't wear red at all oh, okay. in that. But red has been associated as the most common color. When I played Captain Hook, I was certainly, like, it was no question I was going to have the long red pirate coat, because that's what comes out of your collective consciousness Yes. when you think of Captain Hook. Well, right? And also when you think about what Peter Pan wears. Right. You know, it, it, he's going to wear a green tunic that's kind of, you know, jagged on the bottom or mm-hmm. whatever. And, you know, he's going to wear the hat, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, and so that's something that's been played with a lot. But he's definitely, he's always wearing the earthy tones. And that's actually um, a callback to the original production. Absolutely. That he did wear the earthy tones. Although I think people have also played with um, what Tinkerbell wears now that she's more commonly being portrayed as a person. Right. And his hair... Uh, rather, Captain Hook's hair has always been described as what looks like a series of melting candles. Mm-hmm. Um, what color has been always been up to subjectivity. Black has been common. The original Captain Hook actually wore a powdered wig, like a big white, like almost like a judge's looking wig. Oh, yeah. Um, and did not have facial hair either. And mm. when I think of Captain Hook, I think immediately of the mustache, the right? Mustache. You can't not have the mustache. Maybe even a little soul patch. Even Dustin Hoffman <clears throat> had the mustache even he had the mustache and he was a complete homage to oh my god he was all the such versions a good freaking captain he Hook. was a great captain say Hook. what you will about that movie and i know that there's a lot of peter pan um scholars out there who actually have major problems with captain hook but or not with captain hook but with the movie hook but i love the Do- dustin hoffman performance we'll get to hook in a second because i think hook actually is a very faithful representation of, of peter pan and i'll get to that i'll explain why when we get to it okay Continuing with the Disney version, mm-hmm. it is pretty accurate up until, I'd say, the third act. Yeah. Well, and it really comes down to Tinkerbell's with the bomb, right? Yeah. And there's also no poison cake plot, which a couple of the uh, the adaptations have thrown away. Yeah. The, but, the Disney version is that he's given a birthday present and it's right. bomb. And the bomb is later on in the third act. The poison cake was... Um, so for those who need a refresher... Um, Captain Hook's original plot to destroy the Lost Boys was to give them the poison cake because since they have no mother, since they have no one to tell them that it's bad to eat a cake for dinner, uh-huh. they're going to they're gobble the cake up. And, of That's course, right. it's laced with poison and they're all going to die. Yes. Right? 
What a dick. Yeah, the only reason that he finds out that Wendy is in Neverland is because he sees, he plants the cake. He wants to watch as his nemesis yes. is destroyed. And he sees Wendy pick up the cake and throw it away. Because saying, no, 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 proper dinner. And he's like, damn, you know. Foiled again. Right, exactly. <laughs> he's like, the game is up. <laughs> Actually, let me do, may I do my Captain Hook voice? Go for it. The game is up. The boys have found a mother. That was your Captain Hook voice? It was a bit like this, yes. Oh, okay. Yes. I'm sorry, I never actually saw that production. I hate you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a terrible friend. If you want me to, I still have the mo- the monologue memorized from when I'm on the pirate ship and I think I've won and I haven't won at all. Maybe later. Maybe later. <laughs> Not when we're recording. Yeah. Um, for those who don't see, I actually still have the hook and sword from when I played Captain Rick, and they're on our podcasting table right now just for mana, yeah. as you will, for good I mana. I like how um, it consists of a lot of painted gaff tape. Yes. <laughs> Um, and the hook is much larger than you would expect pirate hook to be. But it was supposed to be cartoony, right? Exactly. That's so. that's the idea. Yeah. Is that you're seeing it through a child's eyes. Right. Getting into the second and third act of uh, the Disney version, we... <laughs> Sarah's now scratching herself with my hook. On the head. Let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't thinking that, but you, you made the implication. <clears throat> Uh, you do get the couple differences, like the other big ploy, which is Hook loves his poison because mm-hmm. he puts it in Peter Pan's medicine after kidnapping the Lost Boys, yes. after attacking the Indian tribe um, who has been protecting the boys ever since uh, Peter Pan saved, saved Tiger, Tiger Lily. Lily. Uh, and that's actually where the first deviation takes place. Okay, um, It's in the end of what would have been the first act. Or the third act in the Jean Barry play, because the play is actually five acts long. Mm-hmm. They did the first three, the first half, the second two, the second half. Uh, is then at the end of Marooner's Rock, where yes. it's the first big sword fight you see in the play between Peter Pan and P- Captain Hook. And Captain Hook wins the fight. He injures Peter Pan. And this is up to interpretation, because in the book, in the book, he's actually cut. In the play, he imagines... it's Everything's about playtime, right? Yes. So he just completely imagines that he's been fatally wounded and he's gonna and he's playing dead he's gonna play that he's going to die mm-hmm. right and there's that famous line at the end of that piece which is to die will be an awfully big adventure i love that line yeah that's where it comes from and what you don't see what happens off stage is that tiger lily <clears throat> at the last moment saves peter and uh that is how in the second half of the play there's now this what was originally a feud between the lost boys and the, and the tribe is they now work together an alliance, right. Yes. Which, they, actually, I mean, to a certain extent, that is in the movie, in the Disney version. That is very much true, but they left out the whole him being injured and being left to oh, die. Oh, no, absolutely. No, yeah. they, they dumbed it down for sure. It was mostly Peter Pan tricking Captain Hook, you know, mimicking his voice in that cave. And Which then, is also very much in the book and yeah, in the and play. Yeah, and then, you know, as the tide's coming in, then Tiger Lily's slowly about to drown, and then, you know, Peter Pan saves her after a little brief fight with captain hook saves her and then yes does take her back to the indian tribe and then they're like you know yeah. hooray and then that's when they sing the really horrible song <laughs> right yeah um and there is no initiation ceremony yeah. of the kids into the tribe in the original play and it's just it's implied that there's the bond there and that they are now all friends i feel like i almost feel like that's in the book though i feel like there was a certain amount to that in the book they may have the book does a good job of going into further detail into how the characters are thinking yes um, and they kind of gloss over a lot of the dialogue, uh, a lot of the main p- chunks of dialogue. If you're an, ever an actor who's in that production, 
it's a great piece of reference because you, if you ever want to know what your character's thinking, read the <laughs> read yeah. the book. Uh, if you're Peter Pan or Captain Hook, for that matter, mm-hmm. excellent research material. So after that, it all kind of tightens up. The one moment I think was very true in Disney before we move on to the other versions is that there's the symbolic moment that once uh, Captain Hook's been fed to the crocodiles, which he's not done, he's just chased away by the crocodiles. Yes. In the Disney version, Peter Pan symbolically puts on Captain Hook's hat, mm-hmm. right? That was a very important moment because it was supposed to show that Hook and Pan are the same. Yeah. They are both running from death. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that Hook is doing it much later on in life. Peter is doing it by refusing to grow up. And therefore being much more charismatic. And there was the whole me- the whole metaphor that if he were to keep like this, he will eventually become Hook. Yes. Um, and then, of course, they all go back to well, London. Uh, we can talk about the, the characterization about that, too. I mean, there's a lot of parallels that you can draw between Peter Pan and Captain Hook, but I think that we'll save that for a little bit. Yeah. Moving on to, I think, one of the more true a- adaptations. It wasn't really adapted again until, I would say, Hook, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It may have been done a couple times from television, but Hook in 1991, Steven Spielberg and Dustin his... Hoffman. Right. Robin Williams. And Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts. Bob Hoskins. Glenn Close. And Maggie Smith. Yes. <laughs> Glenn Close, right? What are you saying? Like Everyone's thinking, wait, she wasn't in that movie. She was. She has a very brief cameo in that movie um, in the early scene when they're on the pirate ship and they're talking about putting a pirate in the boo box. Glenn Close is that pirate that they put in there. And lots of makeup. Yes. It's just, no. And you don't no. see her because she's wearing a very convincing beard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It is. But yes, that is, in fact, Glenn Close doing a very weird and brief cameo. In and her. I think they dubbed over her voice, too. I don't think they no. use her voice. Uh-uh. That's her voice? If you listen back to it, it definitely sounds like a woman doing a deep voice. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so here's why I think that movie is actually very loyal okay. to it. So first of all, it, it it does stray in its primary premise, right? What if Peter Pan grew up? Because That's Peter the Pan, point. That's right. why scholars hate it. But <laughs> if there's no asking of what if... Why not? You know, I mean, right. yeah, sure, maybe Barry's estate, if there, he had one, which he does not, nor would it matter because the play is in the public domain anyway. Now, it just, it, it, it's so, such a stupid argument to get into about whether it's true to the original person's intentions. I think Spielberg makes it very true to the intentions because he has so many direct references to the original play with lines that are being repeated from the original yes. piece throughout the entire story but yeah. for example to die will be an awfully big adventure mm-hmm. he of course reverses it at the end saying no to live would be an awfully big adventure right yeah that's like the callback throughout the whole movie is that hook is saying death is the only adventure to die will be an awfully big adventure all on so on and so forth and i think that movie was very much a representation of spielberg in that time period i think it was a too. very much representation of family movies in that time period you have a bunch of it was it's almost like Ernest goes to camp with those lost boys and and how they end up having like all those crazy mechanisms to like fling stuff at pirates and like it's almost a rube goldberg kind it, of situation it's, it's slapsticky it's so yeah. slapstick and i think that in itself was very it, it's very indicative of the time period for sure oh particularly with rufio Rufi. right oh right with his uh <laughs> with his skateboard on tracks and his Hell double yeah. mohawk oh yeah that's all that guy has <laughs> right well he had the, he had the pan sword right up until the end yeah, yeah this is when true he, yeah so definitely flavored with elements of the 90s as well as but the cool thing is <laughs> I, I like <laughs> doused <laughs> doused yeah the bright colors and everything too 
I did like that with the Lost Boys, they were all very anachronistic. They all look like they're from different decades mm-hmm. or different eras of time. Yeah. The twins look like they're more modern. Yes. Um, with their Boy Scout outfits. Toodles. Um, it, well, Toodles wasn't wasn't there. Toodles was the... Toodles was back in London. Right, because he got adopted. He right. lost his marbles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. I forgot about that moment. And there were some really good kids in that movie. If you want to have some fun, though, go over to IMDb and look at those kids all grown up. The one who played the little girl Maggie in Hook is like like freaking drop dead gorgeous now. Right. Oh, we she also grew forgot, up. <laughs> we also forgot that this was the first film credit for Gwyneth Paltrow, too. Yes, this is true. She was the Wendy in the flashback sequence. She was the Wendy in the flashbacks. And because her father is Bruce Paltrow, big, mm-hmm. powerful producer, and she knew Steven Spielberg from a kid because he would come mm-hmm. over for dinner. Yep. So it just... By luck, you know. And it also happens, it helps that her mom is actress Blythe Danner, too. So, she was well connected. Moira, Angela Darling. Yes, indeed. I love the name Moira. Yeah. I think it's really pretty. Also interesting factoid, Wendy had not been seen as a, a girl's name up until Peter Pan. This is true. Yeah. This is true. It's the first time it happened in writing, at least. Mm-hmm. Though it's it's assumed it's a short name for Gwendolyn. Yes. But just putting it out there. Fun fact. Yeah, fun factoid. Indeed. So, um, but yes, the, I think the argument again for Peter Pan scholars, though, the reason why they don't like that is because the fact that the whole point, what the whole idea of Peter Pan is, is that he is the boy who does not grow up. That's the that's the crux of the story. So why would you take that away? Well, I think the intention was if you were to do a sequel on Peter Pan, yes. And many people have tried. Even Disney tried with Return to Neverland. Which I never saw. Which was oddly similar to Hook because it's not Wendy. It's Wendy's daughter. It's Wendy's daughter, but Peter Pan is still not aged. Correct. Just some similar themes. I noticed some similar plot devices that Mm -hmm. were used. I think if the first story is about trying to escape death by never growing up, Hook is all about getting back in touch with your inner child. Okay. Because Peter Banning, the grown-up Peter Pan had totally lost all sense of joy and fun. And, well, and he and he forgot his childhood. Right. And there's a great line in the original Peter Pan when Hook says, who art thou, in the middle of their big epic duel. And he says, I am joy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Pan is supposed to be the embodiment of everything that it means to be a kid. Yeah. So to see all that be lost, and of all things, to turn into a lawyer who specializes in mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. You know, hostile takeovers. He's a pirate. Exactly. You're a pirate, Peter. So, Peter, you've become a pirate. Yes. Yes. As Granny. Maggie Smith. God, I love her. Yeah, exactly. Um, great callback to the ending of the original play, too, right? They mm-hmm. metaphorically did turn him into a pirate. They, yes. He did turn into Hook, in a way. In a way. Yeah. So, uh, kind of cool, I thought. Yeah. I just, and as much as I like that movie, um, and I mean, hey, again, if you're not, if you weren't exposed necessarily to the original um, story of Peter Pan, if you did not see the play, then that's actually the first time when you have somebody saying a fairy can die and you bring it back by clapping. Right. Which is very important to the actual stage production because, you know, it's one of those, it breaks the fourth wall moments, gets um, the audience involved um, because everybody is expected to clap and, and everybody does. And yes, the audience was peppered with children during the original production in order to get people yeah. to get really involved in it. Yes, 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 there is that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of my lesser favorite moments of the 
piece. It's good to... Why? Well, it's a little corny, that's all. It is corny, but that's the whole idea. Yeah. Because... Peter Pan is a story for kids. Right. No, I know. It's also I get... a story for grown-ups who, you know, can appreciate yeah. being a kid. I get it. I get it. I understand it. I prefer the version they did when we, we'll get to when we get to the 360 okay. production, how they did it a little differently. Yes. It's also the only time I can think of where Tinkerbell spoke and spoke at length, too. Like, she had she actual dialogue. at length, yes. Um, I've seen modern retellings for like junior productions for kids mm-hmm. where in the effort to give more roles to females, they'll make Tinkerbell a bigger part mm-hmm. and give them a lot, uh, give her a lot more to say. Yeah. But you know, the thing that I think they did really well was they hinted at the unrequited love that Tinkerbell felt for Peter. Peter is in this very odd love triangle between Wendy, Tinkerbell and Tiger Lily. In the original story. They all have feelings for him, and he doesn't know how to deal with any of that. Well, because he's a kid. He's a little boy. Yeah. Well, and He, he well, hasn't matured to that yet. Well, as far as we know, he's around age 10 or 11. Yes. Just before puberty. Mm-hmm. So just when those thoughts start to happen. Well, think about when you were 10 years old, and all the girls in your class were probably taller than you, you know? Because, <laughs> like, boys, really, they don't mature as fast, right? So then you have girls who have crushes before boys even know what to do with those situations. Yeah. But then... But then you have the very different perspectives of how that affection is being shown. Tiger Lily is more challenging mm-hmm. to a certain extent. The tomboy, extent. if you will. Yeah. Um, Tinkerbell is kind of like the manic, jealous one. Mm-hmm. And then you have Wendy, who's a mother. She's the nurturer. Right. Um, and But that's to us. But in the, in the book, it's definitely more of a, a thing where she's almost expecting the fact that we're going to play mother and father in this dynamic. He only gets into it because he says, okay, as long as it's only for pretend. Yes. You know? Yes. And, and, but she has certain expectations because that's what she's raised with. Of course. So. Right. And you're talking about a lot of these different things, like what's to be expected of children when they become adult gender roles mm-hmm. too, really, which is brilliantly juxtaposed by the fact that Peter's played by a woman most of the time. Right. Too. So very interesting. I don't think any of those were things that they were meaning to express with the original productions, but those in the modern context take on so much deeper meaning. Oh yeah, about it. When you look at at Peter Pan through through the eyes of the post feminist world, mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference. A mm-hmm. huge difference. Sure. And uh, not necessarily. It's not necessarily a good light to be shined in, I guess. Right. But you do have to keep historical context in play. One thing I thought was very interesting mm-hmm. about Hook was that it takes place during Christmas time. This is true. And very cleverly done. The movie was released December 13th in 1991. But do you know why it takes place during Christmas time? I have a feeling you're about to tell me. The original London London production opened on December 27th, 1905. Oh, okay. Peter Pan was always is always done around Christmas time for that reason, or around the holidays at least. Um, the version I was in was done around Thanksgiving. But nevertheless... It's a time for family. It's a time where there's lots of events going on. So it makes sense for a theater company to make money by doing the play around that time period. But also, when the original production wasn't worried about that, it was just a perfect way to get everyone involved, to get the whole family to want to go mm-hmm. and see the story. And I just love that there was all those little respect and trivia nods to the original yes. version of Peter Pan. Yes. So, yes, in its fundamental flaw, if you will, of the fact that Peter Pan would never grow up. In every other respect, Hook is totally respectful 
to J.M. Perry's original story and makes frequent allusions to it throughout I, the movie. It, it feels definitely wink, wink, nudge, nudge mm-hmm. in its style, which I think is nice. But, you know, is it is it loyal or referential? Right. You can and find that's the argument. Right. You can find Peter Pan, by the way, the original Jam Berry novel, um, in the public domain through Project Gutenberg mm-hmm. and through pretty much every ebook platform out there. Yeah. If you want the play, um, the play is still owned by Sam French, which is a pay- play publishing service for those who are not involved with theater. You can go to the Samuel French website and you can you can buy it. It's like cheap. It's like ten, eleven bucks. And uh, if you want to read the original play, it's it's definitely worth it. It's a lot of fun. And it also prepare you for what I think is the most true film adaptation, which is Peter Pan from 2003. Yes. Which is stars Jeremy Sumter mm-hmm. as Peter Pan, and of course the great Jason Isaacs, uh-huh. uh, Lucius Malfoy, for those who are unfamiliar, um, as Captain Hook. Stupid good. And he is so true yeah. to the original version, because Captain Hook is played kind of foppish, myself included, but also by um, all of the original actors in the film versions hook's kind of dirty he's kind of i mean he's educated and he has moments of eloquence and sophistication but he's a pirate still mm-hmm. and this is and the one he's that, almost goofy in a way he's almost goofy and this one makes him a pirate yeah jason isaacs brilliantly blends all those elements together and of course he played mr darling mm-hmm. as well very well might i add in fact this one doesn't have a single plot point that differs between the play and uh, the movie. There's only one scene that I think they added in that was not in the original play, which is when the uh, the Indians sew Michael's pet teddy bear yes. back together, because yeah. that never took place. But everything else is pretty much straight up the original J.M. Barry play. Mm-hmm. Captures all the imagery correctly, too. Well, and it's visually stunning. Right. And it's the first time we're seeing a little boy play Peter Pan and capture all the elements because jeremy sumter was only i think 12 or 13 when he played that part mm-hmm. and he captured all the emotions of that extremely well i think yeah. he was the closest thing we've ever seen to the most true version of peter pan probably yeah i mean that's saying a lot we obviously haven't seen everything but that's true but i think <laughs> visually sure and you know if you were to say if you were if he were to be in existence and be English uh, at the time that J.M. Barry was doing the original Peter Pan production. Mm-hmm. He might very well be that Peter Pan. It's coming, it's what's closest, I think, to J.M. Barry's original vision of the character, is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I, I agree. Definitely. Yeah. It was definitely one when I saw it. I was like, this definitely reminds me of everything that I love about Peter Pan. It didn't have quite the whimsy. I guess, but maybe it's just because I'm older and I never, it was 18 when, I was 18 when it came out. Well, no, and it wasn't it was almost like a darker fantasy version of it. I, I think it did lack a little bit maybe of, of what I would say is whimsy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Something that, you know, Hook had in abundance, the 90s version of whimsy, of course. Disney certainly had, of course, but Disney, Disney does. did, but also, and Disney also, again, had a 1950s cartoon version of right. whimsy. And whimsy is their business. If they don't, yeah. <laughs> you know, if they don't do whimsy, they, they just aren't doing their job. Right. So there's that, but... With that one, it was definitely darker, almost like a, a Daniel Danny Elfman esque score, yeah. too. What felt like, you know. Yeah, I think that one was done a little bit more of an adult version of Peter Pan, if that makes any sense. I mean, as in geared more toward adults. Geared more towards, I guess, really capturing the idea of the Peter Pan complex 
and mm-hmm. really knowing in its in its forefront that it is the Peter Pan complex, right? As opposed to just saying, let's shed all of the interpretation of it, right? And let's actually just focus on the bare minimum facts of what's happening in the story. Yeah, like if you were to take it on a more surface value, I think you would definitely get the much more childlike version of it. Yeah. If that makes any sense. It makes total sense. Okay. Um, I will also say, though, that going back to the adaptation aspect of it, they lift direct lines from the novel and yes. the play and put them into mm-hmm. this version. Very much like how like the original musical stays very close to the original story and to the point where it's pretty much the play, they just added musical numbers into it. Yeah. You know? I, I, I don't know how much more there is to say about that film because it pretty much did its job. It re awakened it for a younger audience, for a mo- more postmodern mm-hmm. audience. Because I think a 13-year-old today versus thir- a 13-year-old back in the 1950s is unfortunately m- more mature, sadly. Uh, not mature in, the, in a, an emotional way necessarily, but in a way that they've been exposed been to certain exposed things. To more. Been exposed to more things that uh, a kid that age 60 years ago would not have been exposed to. Well, the kids nowadays expect something a little bit more visually apparent, whereas I think a child of the 1950s could be more satisfied with cowboys and Indians. Right. You know? Right. And I also love the fact that they did retell the story when they did, because there is so much now where even kids are forgetting to be kids. Mm-hmm. You know? Kids are getting iPhones at age eight. And believe me, people who know me know I'm a hardcore Apple enthusiast. I don't think an eight-year-old should have an iPhone. Mm-mm. I barely think an, eight, eight, an eight-year-old should have an iPod Touch, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So um, it was definitely a movie that needed to be redone. How well they brought the true child aspect of it, I'm not sure. But then again, maybe it's because... We're seeing it through a different context. Right. I mean, we're talking about, sadly, uh, as we realized we were now irrevocably adults, we see that the kids who are 13 now were, were very different than the kids that we were when we were 13. Through our eyes, yeah. Through our own eyes, exactly. So when I was 13, yeah, there was some stuff I knew, but I still wanted to be a kid, you know? I don't know how I would have dealt with the whole cell phone phenomena if I had, was given I a cell phone as young. I still want to be a kid. Yeah? Uh, yeah, I spent a fair amount of time last summer out drawing on the sidewalk with sidewalk chalk like that that's just the kind of person i am though yeah well and that brings me to a moment that sarah and i shared a couple a few years ago that certainly transformed me back into childhood Mm -hmm. and i get if she looks at my arm she can literally see the goosebumps on my arms because just he's not lying he literally has goosebumps right now yeah um because just thinking about that experience brings it all back emotionally which was when we saw uh, the tour of Peter Pan 360. Which was diggity dope. Unfucking believable. Yeah. For those who don't know, in 2010, I think it was 2009, or it, may, it might even be as far back as 2008. I'm going to say 2010. Okay. They had done in London a production of Peter Pan, and they thought, well, let's do it in Kensington Gardens, where they talk about it. And they actually make references to it in the more modern, this more mm-hmm. updated play. But they do it theater in the round, and they do it in a circus tent, and they, they bring in all these elements that make you realize you're in a carnival. You're in this place where you're being transported to a totally different world. It's very Cirque du Soleil. Very Cirque du Soleil, but in such a great way, though. Oh, yeah. So um, because it's theater in the round, they were able, were able to do the flying effects uh, with trapezes, which was a, that mm-hmm. really, really clever. And not for once did you not think that this was a true flying effect, but they were able to do it with male actors mm-hmm. and effectively – so well done. 
Um, they also had a composer write an original score for the play. Mm-hmm. Very John Williams-esque. And it's just so, so well done. And I just got to talk about the tech about it for a little bit, just because of course. I spent six years doing event production and, and audiovisual technology stuff. Um, but the whole idea of doing it in the circus tent 360 um they actually projected all around the sides right so everything that you were seeing when they were flying up you were watching the world like then leave the world behind and go up into the stars right you had this totally computer rendered moving animated set where they're flying through the through the skies of london into neverland yes And Um, and it was flawless and it went all around through the sides and up across the ceiling and also you know the scene when they're trapped on the rock and the water is slowly rising they were doing water effect with lighting and whereas you were actually thinking for a second they were actually sinking when they dove down into the mermaids you felt like you were splashing into the water and the water was actually rising up around you it was the tech in that was impeccable and you know what let's share with the audience a snippet of that score from that production so you can hear what was playing when they were flying to neverland and so you can get goosebumps at it because it just if you imagine all those things together it would i mean i literally became five years old again because i was five when the original peter pan came out there's no other way i can describe it and all the little kids looking up and going wow yeah the little kids in there were awestruck and I... Everyone was awestruck. I was geeking out hard. Yeah. When I had gotten the intermission, yeah. I was in shock. Like, mm-hmm. I was so... I studied theater, and we talk about in classes how transformative theater can be if it's done really well. This was a transformative experience. Um, and this is not Nerds on Theater, but you know what? It's such a great tie-in because of the story is immortalized. Yeah. Now. And the score is cinematic. They used motion graphic sequences they brought lots of film elements that we're used to now into the theatrical experience to make it work speaking of what we was talking about before why do i like the clapping bit because they did something different when Mm -hmm. tinkerbell drinks the poison and starts to fade away they have all these different candles that are in the in the house starting to flicker also brilliant Mm -hmm. but peter just looks at the audience as if you've ever believed in fairies, if you ever believed in magic, just say with me, I believe in fairies. And it starts off really, really soft. And you hear the kids, the first ones, right? I believe in fairies. I believe in fairies. I believe in fairies, right? And then the entire audience, people from age 70s all the way down to, again, toddlers, saying I believe in fairies. That was, I think, way more powerful than clapping. Clapping is, you know, is very, you know, it's, it works. But I think this was able to do the same thing where encouraged participation from the audience broke the fourth wall. But by vocalizing, I believe in fairies, you're like, you know what? I'm in a world of magic right now. Yes, I believe in fairies. Okay. I guess I can can definitely see that argument. Yeah. I will say that, yes, that experience was wonderful um i do think the chanting was very cool it was it was very magical and it was it transported it transported us back to kids right Mm -hmm. and just be like no seriously i do believe in fairies bitch come back to life i I just the way you said that i just immediately thought of like if the cowardly lion was it i do believe in fairies i do believe in fairies i do 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 no i'm imagining more like stay with me don't you die while you're like beating on her chest (laughs) like 
<laughs> Live, damn you! Great. He's just pushing on her with his with his finger. Right. One, two, three, four. But they say, I think you're supposed to do it to the limit of staying alive. One, two, three. Four. <laughs> right. Um, but I think the clapping as is again charming, and mm-hmm. I think that was something that was uh, it appeals more it appealed to the kids of the time period, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I still think all that's very wonderful because if you can get them to like just applaud like oh oh my god why am i applauding for a, a dying fairy what the hell's happening you know right i like them both i i i'm not picky okay i d- i still think i the fourth wall breakdown yeah of that story is beautiful did you watch the neverland sci-fi television movie they did a couple years ago no yeah i didn't see this either but this is a very very interesting reimagination was it anything like the Zoe Deschanel Wizard of Oz that they did? No. Okay, good. It wasn't modern. Okay. It good. was done in the same time period of turn of the century in London, but Peter was a uh, like a street rat, as were all the Lost Boys. And so is Hook. Hook's an adult street rat who is kind of helping them survive. How very Oliver Twist. And they all get transported to Neverland at the same time. And they eventually become the characters who they're supposed to be, according at least to what the premise is. Interestingly enough, Bob Hoskins reprises the role of Smee. Oh, no shit. In this version as well, as he did in Hook. And Reese Ephens, who uh, was the lizard in The, in the Amazing Spider-Man and done lots of, of great parts, mm-hmm. um, was Captain Hook. Oh. Was James Hook in this version of it. Uh, he plays a great villain, by the way. Oh, you know what I forgot to mention? Who was Captain Hook in the version we saw in, in uh, San Francisco? Jonathan Hyde, who is a film actor. He was Van Pelt in Jumanji. Yes, 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 and yes, And the dad yes. in Jumanji, yeah. I Brilliant actor. I had forgotten that for two seconds. Yes. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, he was awesome. He was fantastic. He was so good. He was great as Hook. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, there you go. We sealed it. It, it, was, it was relevant, damn it. Yes. <laughs> Back to film. <laughs> Back to film. Indeed. This is what happens when they leave us, like, just the two of us, and all of a sudden we take it to theater slowly yeah. more and more. It's true. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe one of these days we'll do a theater podcast, Nerds on Theater. Who knows? Maybe. Nerds on Stage or whatever we'll, we'll call it. Nerds on Stage. Yeah. I like a ring of that. Yeah? You like yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so I, I do think that we do need to talk... Let's dive into the story a little bit more. Of um, Peter Pan? Yeah. Yes. I think the story, no film version has gotten it 100%. The 2003 version got the closest mm-hmm. to it, but it's still, you're right, it didn't have that childlike whimsy to it that really needed it to be. But in order for us to understand that, we really need to look at the story itself. Right? Yes. And we've touched on, touched on these elements. A little bit. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start with who is Peter Pan? Peter Pan pretty much embodies everything that we do understand of a young child. He is feisty, he's stubborn, he's playful and imaginative, but he's also very egotistical. He's very much wrapped up in his own world, and what child isn't like that? If you look at most kids, they don't really have a concept of the external world. It's, it really is all about them, because they only understand life from their perspective. Not to say that kids can't be empathetic, but, you know, there's definitely a, a certain maturity that, that comes along with um, age. And yet, he's the boy who can't grow up. He is the one who, as they implied in Hook, and I can't really remember back to the story so brian maybe you can shed some light on this of Mm -hmm. of peter pan's origins being that he was a little kid he was a baby he ran away as an infant um he ran away as an infant because he was hearing all of the stories of his future 
Right. So he ran away to Kensington Gardens. Yes. Where he lived among the fairies who were living there. Mm -hmm. And it was through that that Tinkerbell found him, taught him to fly, and they eventually made their way to Neverland. Yes. Which is, I believe, the land where the fairies lived. Originally. Originally, yes. And then the idea is that um, he will still occasionally, just as kind of for funsies, will fly back to London and go peek in on the windows of people's houses. That's where he meets the darlings. More specifically, he's chasing his shadow, which I love that. That is one of my favorite parts of the whole story, actually, is is the idea of him having to chase his shadow and her having to, Wendy having to sew the shadow back on. Right. And why do you like that so much? It's charming. Mm-hmm. It's very charming. I like the fact that, you know, because when you're, I remember spending a lot of time when I was a kid watching my shadow on the sidewalk and like, you know, kind of making it do weird things and stuff. And I think I really enjoy the idea of your shadow being a separate entity from mm-hmm. you and that's something you have to chase. I don't know. I really, it's something about that's just very charming to me. Well, the shadow got caught because he, Peter Pan actually had made it into the Darling's nursery. Mm-hmm. And then he flew out, and then as Mrs. Darling tried to catch him, the yes. shadow had not made its way out, so it got stuck and got separated. Yes. Yes, as the story goes. And there's a whole scene in the original play where Mr. and Mrs. Darling, Mrs. Darling reveals this whole story. This little boy was flying, and Mr. Darling doesn't believe her until mm-hmm. she pulls out the shadow. Yeah. And they're like, oh, this is so unique. I wonder if we could sell this. Like, there's a whole very adult yes. thinking about this rare phenomenon that they're just seeing because it breaks the laws of physics of course mm-hmm. so yeah it's uh it's a definitely a cool little visual that that you get in that story yeah and and from you know the darling's perspective how cool is it that here's this the story of peter pan the story of a boy who peeks into the windows of, of children and you know lives in this you know far off magical place and then actually having him pop through your window looking for his shadow right I mean, keep in mind, this is a, even in this period of time, if someone were caught doing this, they would be arrested. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, no, you're a prowler at that point. But, but because he's a little, he's a little kid. Exactly. So he just looks, looks, looks like this little lost boy, mm-hmm. no pun intended, just kind of wandering around. But he, he has the lost boys, but he's been looking for a mother, right? Yes. That's the whole reason why he's been going back to London. And he's trying to find a new one because he is heartbroken because he, when he wanted to go back to his mother, they had already had another child, and he felt like he was forgotten. Which is tragic. Tragic. Probably not true, because I don't think a mother would ever forget their first child. No, but again, from the perspective of a child... Right. I mean, hell, when there's a second child born, and you, all of a sudden you have a little sibling, and then you feel like, well, psh, now my parents don't care about me, they only care about the baby. Someone should do a story about the other kid, the brother of Peter Pan. Right. That'd well, be they, really... they've done stories, um, what is the book called, Lamb? That's about uh, Jesus's brother. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so it'd be kind of interesting if there was ever a story where Peter met his brother. That would be kind of interesting. Yeah. It took him just for one hurrah into Neverland or something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> I would be rather... Huh, that is kind of interesting. Yeah. Noted. <laughs> All right. Hollywood? Strap in. We're making, <laughs> we're making that movie. <laughs> you never know. You never know. And then, okay, so then let's look at Wendy. Yeah. Wendy's at a point now where she's going to have to move out of the nursery. And she doesn't want to. She right? does not want she to. She chooses to at the end. Yeah. But in the beginning of the story, she's looking at the impending end of her childhood. And she's like, what the heck? But I want to have the stories. I want to have the playtime. And that begs the question, 
who's the main character of Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. It's really Wendy. It's it not Peter. Really Wendy. It's not Peter Pan at all. Because this journey is about Wendy not wanting to grow up, her going through this journey of going to another land, only to realize that now she has to do what she has to do. <gasps> Where have we heard that before? <gasps> Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, perhaps? Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Because I, I, I'm looking at it from the, the idea of the stereotypical hero's journey, which we mentioned during the Princess Bride podcast. Right. Um, and I kind of wonder... Because it's honestly the first time I'm processing it in my head. I'm kind of wondering if she followed the same type of her hero's journey. But she doesn't per se. She goes on the quest for internal fulfillment. Yeah. And with all those stories, there's always a journey that's involved of some kind. Mm-hmm. They use, of course, going to a fantastical world. It can be going on a road trip, for all you know. I can't think of a movie that's done that with a female main lead character, but... It's that journey. Britney Spears Crossroads. How how dare you? How dare you? Well, Um, it's a road trip. There were chicks involved. I don't know. It's it's that great old story of a person who thinks they know what they want. Yes. But by going on this journey, they figure out what they need. Yes. And it turns out that Wendy realizes she needs to grow up. Well, and because she was almost trying to force Peter into doing all these grown-up things during her time in Neverland. Right, and... She gets to see what it's really like to be uh, to be a person who doesn't w- ever want to grow up. To be a permanent child. Right. So Peter is in, integral to the plot, of course, because it's named after him. Mm-hmm. But interesting how when Barry adapted the novel, it was called, it was changed to Peter and Wendy. Yes. Not just Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. So there is that relationship and how her relationship with Peter changed her and helped her realize her destiny, which was to grow up. I wonder why then Peter gets the pass, I guess, as he's allowed to be the perpetual child. Yeah, because it's not his story. He's an ally, I think. I mean, yeah. he's a subplot character, actually, when you think about it, too, because he his journey mimics Wendy's, but his is unchanging. Hers does change. Hmm. And to me, subplot characters are characters whose story mimics that of the main character. Yeah, yeah. Just his has slightly different circumstances. But and and that it really does become that he's just symbolic mm-hmm. throughout even what's theoretically his own story. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, I'm processing this as we're talking about it because we were wholly unprepared. It's okay. <laughs> I just got her to think about it in a totally different way. No, no, I, and I yes, yes, you have. Not to say that I didn't also consider it, but I hadn't given it this much thought before. Mm-hmm. It's really deeply. I mean. Barry made it a very well-crafted story because you've got some very strong characters. You do. In it. You, you truly do. And I do find it really interesting that Peter Pan definitely, even though there's all this action that's taken place, he's still in a stasis. Mm-hmm. And there's something to be said about John and Michael, too, because John, being the second eldest, mm-hmm. is very much almost like the superego of Wendy because he is doing what he should be doing, acting as the way he should be acting. Yes, and he rarely fully dips into becoming a, a little kid again. He he does play a little kid, but he thinks he's doing as he should be. I almost feel like, and in the same sense that Wendy, when she's playing the mom, he's definitely playing pretend grown up. Right. Which is I find really fun. Yeah. Because, I mean, we all did it when we were kids. Sure. I do like the idea of them being like the, the superego and then the youngest one being the id. Right. You know? Well, in child development, I mean, you mimic your adults because you're preparing for what it's like when you are an adult. Well, and right? pretend games um, will play in general when you're looking at kids. And even actually when you're, fascinating enough, when you're looking at dogs, play mimics reality. 
Right. Um, you know, you are mimicking romantic relationships. You're mimicking lifestyle. You're mimicking, you know, jobs. Right. You know, when you're looking at dogs, they a lot of dogs will actually, um, you know, when they growl and get really vocal and wrestle and stuff, they're mimicking fighting. And then you have Michael, who is the youngest, right? And still mm-hmm. totally enveloped in childhood. Mm-hmm. And isn't even thinking about growing up. He's just wondering, he's living moment to moment. He is the id. Yeah. If you were to do this Freudian analysis. Which apparently we started doing. Yeah. But it's hard not to. Yeah. It's so hard not to when you're looking at at something that is so, it's so, it's our, it's our childhoods when we're looking at this. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing the different stages. Yes. Of childhood. Absolutely. As well. Yeah. Well, and I think the different stages of childhood are also represented in, the Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. Everything supports that theme of, again... Growing up. Growing up. It's it's weird because we do find Peter Pan interesting. We do sort of want to emulate that behavior mm-hmm. of being a perpetual child. Right. But at the same time, it's almost a pity thing. Yeah. There is one thing I think is very interesting about the play ending okay. of Peter Pan that has not really ever been done on film okay. before. Which is that Peter leaves on the promise to Wendy that he will come back once a year. Yes. So that Wendy can do his laundry. Because Wendy has now accepted that she is his mother. Mother. Right. But why does she do that? She does it because she still wants that reminder of her childhood. Because that experience in Neverland was nevertheless one that she'll never forget. And allows her to, at least periodically, dip back into that And you don't want to forget that. Right. But what I do find interesting is that when Peter comes back, just out in the first year, mm-hmm. he's already being the teenager, like the uh, the misbehaving child mm-hmm. who doesn't want to come back necessarily this next time because he feels like it's something he has to do. And how many times is when you were a kid do you want to do something that you've, yeah. you've been told you have to do, right? Yeah. You have so, to get a kiss from grandma. Right. And it's interesting how that's not done very much because that totally plays into, again, that story of trying to escape your childhood. And the thing I thought was really interesting in the 360 version is they did kind of what they did in the Mary Martin musical, which is where they come back and and Wendy's all grown up. They did that in the book. Okay, that's why. Because they didn't do it in the the original play production. No, at the end of the book, they come back, Wendy's all grown up, and her daughter is sleeping in the bed. Right. But there's also a moment where they talked about during World War One, like Michael went to war and he got killed. Yeah. And that was done in the, th- the 360 version. I don't know if they talked about that in the... Um, and it does in the 360 version end with the daughter because Peter's yeah. crying and yeah. it's that whole full circle. Boy, why are you crying? Exactly. Yeah. And I love that the way that the, our, the actor who we saw as Peter Pan did it because he would always stand up quickly and then he did that awkward smile. That, yeah. You know? Yeah. Because there's that age where you don't really know how to smile until you're like you're a teenager. It's not smile without looking like a freak. <laughs> exactly. I had an awful smile as a kid. I think I have the same exact smile. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah. Good for you. Do you look at pictures of me when I was like a little, little tyke? I have the yeah. same smile. Well, it's pretty obvious that this story means a lot to us specifically. Hence why we talked about it tonight. 
But I mean, hey, why don't you guys let us know? How do you feel about Peter Pan? Is there something uh, really crucial about J.M. Barry or something about the productions um, that you've seen that we may have missed? Something, some wild interpretation or um, maybe even some psychoanalysis that we didn't really talk about because we just kind of very briefly touched upon it. Yeah. Um, but please let us know. Yeah. And we didn't do a character analysis on Captain Hook or anything like that. And that's yeah. fine. We can always do this for another episode or through correspondence with you guys. Yes. Right. Uh, by the way, you know, if you have seen it, and you should, you should have seen it by now. We gave you time. We gave you plenty of time. <laughs> you, you're listening to a podcast. You can pause it. <laughs> if you didn't, because you've already seen it, go back and watch your favorite version. Because it's worth watching over and over again. Because we, like Wendy, wants to have that ending where she gets to relive her childhood. We will always want to relive our childhood, right? And what better way than to go back and look at the stories we loved as kids and see them with fresh eyes. I swear to God, Neverland almost defined my childhood. Yeah. In the sense that when I was, you know, in my room playing by myself, it was pirates. It was Indians. It was mermaids. Mm -hmm. It was all of those things. Hell, I even pretended to be a lost boy for a while. I was a tomboy. (laughs) I never really wanted to be Wendy or Tinkerbell, but I always wanted to be a lost boy. (laughs) I wish there was a place... Call it a theme park, if you will. But I wish there was a place that was like Never Neverland. You have Disneyland. It's hey, not Frontier, close enough. When Frontierland first opened, and they actually had like cowboy and Indian fights out there, when they actually did have pirates on the ship right. back in the back in the 1950s, when it first opened, it was more like Neverland than it is now. True. That's for damn sure. For those who've been to Walt Disney World, please help us shed some light here because I've never I- been to Disney World. Nor have I have only been to Disneyland. Please tell me there's some shred of hope out there and that they do th- those things there. Or Euro Disney or um, <laughs> the, uh, Japan's Disneyland. And then I think Hong, Hong Kong, Kong Disney. has a Disneyland. Yes, yeah. they do. And they're working on one in the Middle East as well. Well, see, there we go. So, all over. <laughs> anyway, like I said, take a moment, relive your childhood, watch your favorite version of that movie. If you want to share this information with us about your favorite moment in Peter Pan or anything that you want to add, you can email us at thenerdsatneuronomy.com or use our listener feedback button on our homepage at nerdonomy.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at nerdonomy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you want to say your personal Twitter? Oh, yeah. Um, if you guys want to follow me directly on Twitter, it's at sarahash16. And you can follow me directly at Brian Moriarty. And with that, guys, thank you for listening. David will be back again next week. And tune into us next time on Nerds on Film. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. And roll credits. And now, famous movie quotes you should not say during sex. Hi, I'm Woody. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Eh, 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 give me that.